Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're here to do the International Boxing Hall of Fame episode. We do it every year, at least every year uh, for the last few years. And the last few years, I've luckily been able to, with my buddy Eris here, pick, make some picks for the International Boxing Hall of Fame. But we're here to, I guess, brag about the fact that we get to pick <laughs> right here. So yeah, we're here to discuss the the ballots though. How's it going, dude? It's going great, my man. Um, like you said, we uh, just got done voting not too long ago and um, next year is going to be a big year for the Hall of Fame. And um, I'm excited for it. You know, I'm excited to see who's going to be inducted. I have a couple of names I have my fingers crossed for, but regardless, they got three classes going in next year. So this is the most jam-packed it's ever going to be. I'm hyped. Man, it's, you're not lying whatsoever. It's going to be massive, dude. Um, and obviously, because of the pandemic, they've had to cancel the last few years, which has been crappy as hell, especially because the two years ago was going to be my first year to go and whatever. And nothing we can do about it now. But they're going to make it a massive threefer this coming year, and it's going to be... It's going to be huge, dude. So every year uh, on Halloween, it's like that's how I remember it. Halloween's not just Halloween, but Halloween's also get your ballot in day. <laughs> get your ballot is, mailed yeah, out day. So we I just almost turned missed the deadline once a long, long talking way over a decade ago. And I think uh, um, Ed Brophy, the uh, you know, president, owner, founder, whatever, of the Hall of Fame, called my dad asking when the ballot was going to be sent like yeah like a teacher would be you know wondering when your your paper was due or some shit like that uh eris missed his international boxing hall of fame ballot today um what yeah that's that's pretty he wild did, he's not thinking in in, in no and i don't know word for word but he said something to the effect of it if uh he doesn't get in by the 31st, then, you know, you're basically going to be banned as a, as a, as a voter after that. Like you're taking off the, the voting process. So I made sure. Never I, I was even worried about it this year, to be honest. I mean, first of all, it's wild that it goes back like 10 years for you. That's fucking crazy. I've been voting for like, I think this is my fourth year now. And I mean, for me, that's like, I'm really honored, but that's crazy. You've been voting that long. But I mean, dude, I was worried about it this year because of all the mailing issues and stuff like that. Like I've, uh, for pretty much my entire life, you sent just about anything that was below like a couple of pounds anywhere in the U.S. That shit was guaranteed to get there in three days. And mm -hmm. in the last in the last few years, it's like I don't know, it might be three, five, seven, ten, whatever. So I was a little bit worried. I, I actually drove myself to the post office and made sure to put it in there and get it going. But man, there was, it, it was a tough year. It was a, a really difficult 
ballot this year because of just the way everything timed out. The last, uh, what was it? I think three or four years ago, they changed the rules a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So it kind oh. of, it, it, it regrouped fighters, but it also made it so that fighters would be eligible at different times after, mm -hmm. quote unquote, retiring or after having not fought for X amount of years. So, I mean, it, it's really made it so that uh, we, we already knew that this year was going to be tough, man. So, like, yeah, like you just said, to put it in perspective, about a few years ago, they, they switched it up for voters so that, like, you're only allowed now in the modern category to vote for five fighters, right? And back then, when I first started voting, the first class I voted for was the class of 2005. So, um... I got my ballot in 04. I was, what, 19. And um, that was for Terry Norris, Bobby Chacon, um, and I want to say Barry McGuigan was in that class, too, or something. It was, that was one of those classes anyways. But, like, what I'm, what I'm getting at is that back then, um, you were able to vote for 10 fighters in the modern category. So it was kind of easier, I think still difficult there's a lot of names to pick through and to narrow down 10 guys out of a list of i don't even know how many i never counted but like out of the list that they give you and to narrow it down to 10 guys is not easy man you know you, unless you're doing if you're doing your due diligence not just going by name value and who you recognize first and you know uh, memories you have of them or whatever it may be but like if you do your due diligence and you're studying and going through that and nitpicking and going through each one you know it was different and not only that, like you mentioned, they were taking other fighters who were sitting on the ballot for a long time, moving them because they, you know, careers and uh, different eras that they fought and stuff like that. So I, for my part, I actually voted for what guys that would be considered old timers today. I voted for them in the class back then. Like, for instance, I voted on names like Coco Kid, um, Delulio Loi, Lou Silica, um, Silica um, Lloyd Marshall, Holman Williams, Joey Archer, like. Those are names that would be, you know, that are now old-timers, whatever, stuff like that, right? But back then, they were still on the modern ballot. So you would have an old-time name like that right next to, like, say, for instance, Roy Jones or something, right? So that's what it, it was going through. But then as you fast-forward a bunch of years now, like you mentioned, everything has been changed. You're only allowed now to vote for five fighters on the ballot, for the modern ballot. And a lot of the fighters, and anyone whose last fight was in 1988 or before that is now considered an old-timer. Which, I mean, is pretty crazy, especially for some of the voters who, frankly, I mean, like, if you looked at a list of the voters, and I've never, I've never seen a list, but if there were a list, and you looked at it, my guess is that the average age would probably be like 60 or something. I mean, and it's not to talk shit about anybody old or older, elderly, whatever, but it's just that the fact of the matter is that a lot of the people in these institutions are like older white dudes. And that's it. That's yeah. I mean, it just is. And so voters like us who are like in our thirties are on the younger side and we're young enough now that, you know, you start putting a lot of these fighters in who are like on the cusp of old timers or, you know, before 1988, like we remember some of these fighters, you know, not, we weren't fans like that at the time, but nonetheless, they were around when we were when we were little and shit. So it's pretty, it's well, they were pretty still active when we were, when we got into the sport as well, too. A lot of them, you know? Yeah. Some of them were dude. And looking at, uh, you know, on the, well, actually, no, I mean, you know, like, well, if their last fight was, excuse me, if their last fight was in 1988 before that, then definitely weren't active. But, um, 
I mean, not uh, when we yeah, were like, like fans, was... fans, but you know, yeah. when we were alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, yeah perfect. But um, but, but like, but you still, it's yeah, pretty so crazy, I, dude. And so what I what I know is I'm hoping next year to be able to vote for all categories. I just never pushed for it, but um, what I know is when you vote for the old timers, they balance it out by like each. There's like two sets of old timers. They're the ones who are more modern, whose last fight was around like in the 80s or a little bit before that. And then there's the old timers, old timers, who's we're talking, you know, guys in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, so on. So each year for them, there's like a balance of, you know, one year it's going to be the, the more modern guys and next year it's going to be the other one. You know what I mean? And who can be inducted, stuff like that. If one guy in the modern category who you feel should be getting inducted, um, for instance, a guy like Ernesto Marcel, who gets a lot of attention, criminally underrated, probably should have been in years ago when he was still in the modern category, but obviously, you know, got snubbed. Um, he would be, he's in the modern old-timer category now. Or a guy like um, Butelio Gonzalez, I believe, you know, the former flyweight champion from, who was still active yeah. in the 80s. Well, he was on the ballot a couple of years ago, because now he, you know, now, like, now he's... He's considered an old-timer now, I think. Yeah. yeah transferred yeah. over to the old timer list because i remember Serrano might have been another or yeah i think he's on the old timer list too no i think i voted for batulio gonzalez on my first vote that was like my fifth vote or something like that i want to say but i'm not positive but yeah and so now they've kind of like depending on the year they kind of transfer over to the other lists and i mean mm -hmm. for for the, i think the more quote-unquote modern or whatever old timer uh categories there's still a lot of good fighters who really deserve more recognition than they've ever, than you know they're they've gotten. But to be totally frank, on the like old some of the old timer and like pioneer uh, ballots, dude, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And I'll oh, be looking yeah. through. I mean, with all due respect, I'll be looking through the lists. And I mean, you and I, we do our research, we do our reading and stuff. And there will be names on there where I'll be like, I've never heard of this fucking name in my life. With all due respect, again, I'm not trying to shit on anybody. But it's just, you know, after so many years, they've, they, the International Boxing Hall of Fame opened in Canastota in 1990. And after so many years, I mean, we're going on 30-plus uh, years now. It, there's been a lot of recognition, rightful, deserved recognition, again not talking trash about it at all but it's just that like there are only so many fighters once you get to a certain point after so many years that like they've been recognized we know who they are and we don't necessarily need to induct the cousin of the cut man of the dude who once sparred you know john l sullivan it's it's okay <laughs> but but then again i don't know you got a piece of the barn from from the Sullivan fight. So the depths of depravity when it comes to fandom and when it comes to recognition is, is there's no bounds. And I would it. buy more shit too, man. Like I was really, I was, I almost offered a price because uh, Lou DiBella had an old um, Billy Con passport that I became obsessed with like shit like that. Totally. <laughs> well, some of that quirky shit's fun though. You know I mean? People can collect cards and magazines. I, I collect magazines and stuff, of course, but some of the, some of the more fun stuff is like the really obscure or weird stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm still uh, got my eye out for that wa pocket watch collection from Nat Fleischer <laughs> to Papa, even just a couple of them or something. But look, dude, we're, we're here to talk about the ballots for the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And 
for this year, who was the first name that to you was like, there's no question. I need to pick that name. I think that's consensus for everybody would be Roy Jones easily. He was the newest name on the ballot for this year. And I don't remember. I don't know what his last fight was. I'm assuming it was only, I don't think it was five years ago. I, I think it was less than that, but the hall of fame as um should mention another rule that they, that they changed for the modern category has been that um, they changed the, the age, the, the years in terms of how, like before it used to be five years before. Right. Yeah. The father. And now they've changed it to three years. I think it is right. So yeah, exactly. It used to be five. So it was like, give a, a little bit more of a cushion. So now it's like some fairly recent fighters have, have been getting on right away. And I think they were doing that too, just to get like more big names on the ballot quicker. I'm not, you know, um, well, I mean, and again, did, like guys like Mayweather and Andre Ward and Hopkins and other ones ended up being on the ballot a lot quicker, you know, yeah. um, than they would otherwise. So, well, and I think you're right about a number of things there due to Roy Jones probably should be the, the most universal of the names. Like he'll probably get the most amount of votes on the most amount of ballots to get in. Um, and yes, they changed the year and to be kind of frank. Again, not trying to trash anyone or talk down on anybody. Um, the pandemic plus uh, a kind of like economic downturn, I think in Canada, well, it's not like, I'm not even saying anything that's a mystery. They've said it themselves because they've appealed to voters and other people for financial help at the International Boxing Hall of Fame facility. Um, they've been having an economic, economically, they've been having a pretty tough time and not just the facility. I think the town of Canastota is like, uh, notably like not doing super well. And so it's a really small town. We've talked about it before on all the other episodes, but like for this chunk of the year, even if it's just a few weeks, the international boxing hall of fame, like sustains the town. It like truly does like the town, like fucking comes alive and shit. And that's not to say that the people who don't, who live there all the time, like don't exist otherwise, but it's, it's obviously a big celebration and to do when it does come around. And I think in the last handful of years, they've really been hurting and uh, really in need of donations and stuff like that. And I think that changing the years from five to three might've been an attempt to kind of get those bigger names and to get some of the recognition from there. I, I mean, just a guess. Seems about right because look at the names that, you know, for the past couple of years that they would have had um, induction weekends for, but obviously, you know, got postponed because of COVID, um, have been inducted now. Names like Mayweather, Bernard Hopkins, Andre Ward, um, you know, like that. Those are three huge names to begin with right off the jump, especially Hopkins and uh, Mayweather. Yeah, there's, there's no question. And I think that this next year or two, um, which should be a pretty good, pretty good gauge for Canastota and for the Hall of Fame facility as far as like what what they're able to do because it's like frank you know frankly if they can't if this next coming June isn't like blockbuster status isn't like holy shit you know like this is breaking in the dough and really helping us out then like nothing will I mean honestly Absolutely. it's it's, this is as good, this is as big as it can get for them. If they can get all the names to show up for their week for that weekend too, like not to say all these guys are going to be accessible. Like I don't know how accessible Mayweather's going to be to the fans or you know other fighters, but like if you can get all of these people to get inducted to show up to Canastota for that weekend, 
And then on top of that, you know, bringing the other fighters who over the years have been regular visitors, um, there's no reason why that wouldn't be a huge, huge event weekend. Like, I think everybody would make an attempt to be there. Everyone on Twitter who hasn't been on before has been talking about it, rumbling for a number of years, talking about they finally going to make the pledge. If all these guys got inducted, a lot of people from Twitter, I'm sure, would end up going for it just to be there, make a big weekend of it. Fans from all over the world would show up. I'm sure that would be a huge thing for them, but I just hope all of this can, you know, come together. It's still a big, it's, it's a lot to ask for. It's a lot to come together, but, you know, a, a very promising sign is that the tickets are on sale now for it. So, you know, I think it's a go, but back to what we were saying, um, <clears throat> Roy, you know, Roy is a given, easy given, you know, he just look at his career, look at what he's done. And don't even, and even with what happened at the end of his career and, you know, some of the L's he took, he fought a little bit too long and he finally looked mortal at the end. None of that even matters. Roy had such a body of work of what he did in the 90s and early 2000s that no one has ever seen anything like that before. I've never seen anything like that. I still never will. In my lifetime, I probably will never see anything like a prime Roy Jones Jr. There was nothing like him, man. He was literally Superman. You know what I mean? And even though his competition wasn't the strongest at times and people can say, oh, you know, he didn't fight Ben, he didn't fight Eubank, he didn't fight Mikulczewski or so on and so forth. Everybody that he did fight, they weren't scrubs. All right. Like he fought legit competition and he made guys who are usually very tough and durable and would go the distance and always give a good account of themselves and just blow the shit out of him, man. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't do anything with him. Like nothing. You know, and they, some of these guys would go on and still have credible careers afterwards, become champions or sometimes or whatever it was, and they just couldn't do a thing with Roy. Roy was so good that it was, like, rare for him to lose a round in his prime, let alone, like, think about him even losing a fight. There was nothing unlike Roy Jones Jr., man. And, like, every, you know, if you listen to his show, you know his accomplishments and his accolades and all that. But just to see him in person, you know, it was just a, an unbelievable thing, man. Easy pick. Just easy. Dude literally was the most incredible human I've ever seen when it came to the sport athletic wise and everything like that when I was a kid it was just insane man it, it's it's not just the eye test too I mean uh you can definitely quibble over things on Roy Jones resume um what he kind of did though was he started I would say it was like he he, he killed a lot of the criticism with uh with quantity you know, he, it, he definitely has some gaps in his ledger, for sure. You mentioned some of them. I wish that he would have made a more earnest effort, for instance, to take on Darius Mikulczewski. I feel like he would have won. I do think that Mikulczewski, you know, did have a punch and did potentially have a, a busy style that could have given Roy some problems. But at the same time, I think that especially then, Roy would have won. But that's regardless, you know, like, again, you can nitpick, you can go, start going through his resume. But fact of the matter is he started at 160 pounds and won a world championship there. Perhaps not the lineal championship or a unified championship, but went up to 168 pounds. And even though it was a fairly new division, accomplished a much uh, enough at 168 pounds that he's still now considered one of the top two fighters. And I mean, that might change. Canelo Canelo's on the march right now. We just had the the recap episode the other day. So I don't know. We'll see. There there could be some shuffling around if Canelo stays there and does some damage. Um, but I'm not entirely sure the division's good enough for that. But point is Roy is easily top few or whatever at 168 pounds 
period, uh, one of the top, I don't know, probably like top 20 middleweights or some shit like that. That's a, that's a tough division, bro. And he didn't really, he wasn't there that long. Yeah, he wasn't there that long. He wasn't there that long, but he yeah. had the potential. He had the potential to go down as one of the top five or top 10 at that point. Right. Because but, like, if you want the Hopkins fight, you know, that, that, it wasn't one of his best performances for either guy. They were both still relatively young in that one, but Roy run it, won it comfortably. But if you watch like, you know, his uh, title defense against Thomas Tate, for instance. And this is what I mean about guys who never get blown out, always go to like really, really, really tough contenders who Roy just obliterated. Thomas Tate, for instance, went the distance with Julian Jackson. All right. How many people could say they went the distance with Julian Jackson? Do you not think that many. Yeah, not, not that many. many. At all. Not that many at all. It's very, very rare. Thomas Tate did. Did he lose? Yes. Did he take a beating in the process? Yes. But he went the distance with Julian Jackson and gave him a really, really good fight. That alone tells you how tough he is. After the Roy Jones fight, he went on to have a very, you know, uh, good, very good, solid career as a top contender in the super middleweight division. Anyways, he fights Roy Jones and Roy Jones with one punch, one punch, not take the fuck out, like obliterated him, bro. You know, it was like one of the, and that was the first time Roy said he ever unleashed RJ in a fight because Tate and everyone was, you know, was talking a lot of smack before the fight, saying what he was going to do to Roy and he was young and he was going to do this and that and blah, 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 X, Y, and Z. And if you watch it, Roy's just cautious, cautious, and boom, just one shot out of the blue and Tate is just done. Stepping completely out, he gets up. Any Mustafa Muhammad, I believe, was his trainer to get, and he was like, bro, nah, it's all like, uh uh, just cut it. You know, and that was it. Like, that just shows you the explosiveness of how he was. What he did to a guy like Murphy Sosa, who was considered at one point, right before he fought Roy, he was voted to have the best chin in boxing. Roy stopped him in two. Like, he was just incredible. What, what was it that he said in on Y'all Must Have Forgot? They're, they're not nobody. I just make them look like nobody or, so, or something yeah. like that. He, he, he had some line. Uh, I don't fight nobodies. I just make them look like nobody or something like that. You know, he had a bunch of crazy ass Southern rhymes on that fucking, but look, dude, he's, he really was, uh, he had some legitimate accomplishments at, at light heavyweight. He obviously had some longevity over a granted, not a great division. And again, That's some gaps. In the the week, yeah, it was not a good division, but uh, even so the longevity really helps his case there. And then, you know, he's still able to go up to uh, one of the very, very few fighters. I think, what, two or three? Well, I guess technically James Tony did not because he, he it got overturned because of the, the steroid thing, the Ruiz thing. But uh, so only a couple of fighters have ever won the middleweight crown and then gone up to heavyweight and won a heavyweight championship but obviously some asterisks there because it's john ruiz and it wasn't the heavyweight title or whatever at the time but regardless uh a tremendous accomplishment a, a huge accomplishment and it's i think point, yeah yeah go ahead i was gonna say to the point where i remember people were saying if roy had retired after that fight a lot of people would have thought that you you know he would have gone down as the goat greatest of all time a lot of people would consider that i know so not a lot say not like, like great that, not but... many historians but a lot of fans and writers and stuff probably would have gone along and said that yeah it would have been it would have been easier to go along with that thinking i think like i, I don't agree with it 
but it would have been easier for a lot of people to go along with that thinking had he retired at that point and said, I'm out, you know, and (laughs) he would have denied Antonio Tarver the opportunity to, to, you know, do what he did too. But anyway, um, no, a, a tremendous, a really tremendous accomplishment and being able to win world titles, uh, you know, at, at any capacity in that span of divisions is really massive. So um, just that alone. And then you said like, kind of like the eye test, as they say, where you talk about what a fighter looks like in the ring. And he looked incredible. He looked from 160 all the way to heavyweight, really looked really incredible to the point where there are times he just looked flat out unbeatable. Like there wasn't anybody in history who could defeat that style or that kind of fighter. And that and that came to his detriment too at the end, unfortunately, because it did. he was he was so quick, so athletic, and no one could do anything with him that he never bothered to actually like pick up the it. base that he could 100%. use to you know make longevity in his career. He still tried to fight like a twenty year old when he was in his mid forties, and that's when he was getting iced by all these guys. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it wasn't like he didn't know how to box, but he didn't have a very orthodox style. And the whole point of having a very orthodox style or some of the more orthodox styles is, is a conservation of movement and energy and stuff like that, where he never had that. He was, mm-hmm. you know, dancing all around, jumping around, leaping around, because that was part of his style. And so always with the hands down, you know, just Yeah. And then the part of what's necessary to make that work, the reflexes, when those start to go, when the speed starts to go, when your legs start to go, these things are really essential for that style. Or when they start to go, dude, it's, it doesn't work or it doesn't work as well. And that's precisely what we saw. And he was able to kind of like get past that a little bit by gaining some weight, going up to cruiserweight for a bit, fighting in Russia. And <laughs> I mean, he, he did okay. There were some like pseudo contenders. He was like obliterating at cruiserweight even, but, it was all just a smokescreen because he was able to, you know, fight guys who would come to him and he could just kind of stand there and then have enough power to knock him out type of shit. It, it just faded away. You know, you can't fight with that style forever and you nailed it, dude. Yeah. Absolutely. But regardless, easy first pick, man. And I know he's going to be a first ballot hall of famer for most people too. You know, he, did he ever get, did he ever test positive for anything? Yes. Technically speaking, he and Richard Hall tested positive before their fight for the ingredients of ripped fuel. Okay. That, that, uh, supplement. I'd have to look, I don't even remember, but I think that it's something that was like banned at the time. And it's something that's like not even in circulation that much anymore. I'd have to look again, but regardless, it was a ripped fuel was a brand name, supplement quote unquote that was in use by a lot of athletes or a lot of people and i remember seeing it and shit at the store at the time no i've heard of it i've heard of it yeah yeah Yeah. and so they both tested positive and it kind of just got swept under the rug it never really got revisited nothing happened um but that actually you know brings me to the guy who i think should be also getting in and i voted for last year but he didn't make it i thought bring him up next james tony right I, I, yeah, I thought that he would get in last year, dude. I mean, I, I was pretty sure because I don't know. I mean, it feels like the years have kind of been kind to him in terms of like memory. A lot of people love him. Yes. Like, you know, JT is one of my favorites. He was always one of my favorites. And everybody says that shit. So I just kind of figured it would be a popular pick. But there were, you know, uh, a lot of people like Dan Raphael 
And I, I feel like he's, he spoke out about it and dude, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe this is just the asshole part of my brain saying this, but it's like, I almost feel like he spoke out about that. And then other people were like, yeah, yeah, me too. Cause I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Nobody's been saying anything about this for like years. Nobody ever brought this up. And now all of a sudden it's a thing. What, what do you mean? But whatever. I mean, we already had our steroid and performance enhancing drug uh, conversation with the whole Canelo uh, plant preview. So I think my, my thoughts on it are pretty clear. It's a pretty stupid conversation. And I'm like, I'm like not even factoring it into my picks whatsoever. I felt James Tony was, oh, and also I should interject and say both Eris and I had the exact same picks without even fucking consulting each other. We're weird, bro. So that's why we're kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just happened. It just, uh, so that's why we're kind of just rolling along and not, you know, revealing any differences in the picks because they're the same. So I also picked James Tony, um, and I also, in a way, kind of felt like, all right, well, if Roy Jones is almost certainly going to get in, it would be really cool for like a rival or something like that to also get in, even though it was only one fight. Um, you know, they obviously had bad blood and were barking at each other over a couple pay-per-views and stuff like that. And um, so I thought it would be kind of cool, uh, similar to in in I would say probably two or three years assuming a ballot is a little bit weaker on the weaker side or that there are fewer like big name guys uh, that are going to be jumping out at the voters. I would love to see, for instance, like Israel Vasquez and Rafa Marquez get in together or something like that, you know, like something like or that. Like, yeah, that exactly. Precisely. Something like that would be fucking awesome. And I'd love to see that. So in the same vein. Well, I think that was the year, like, I think, I want to say Chiquita Gonzalez and Michael Carvajal went in together. See, that that they would did. be, like, did. perfect. They definitely did. Yeah, they definitely did. And I'd love and to was- see, I'd love to be there in person to see what kind of insults James Tony has for Roy Jones. <laughs> I, I, think James, I think James would be in a jovial mood. When I met him at the Hall of Fame, he was in a really good mood. He was he was awesome, but maybe he might even have outside, some like yeah. like yo mama like capping on Roy Jones. Oh, I'm so. sure I'm sure he's definitely gonna try to say <laughs> some shit. You know, James, he always got something up his sleeve. But you know, he's de- bro, he's deserving, man. All right, regardless of how you feel about PEDs and all that, and that's a whole other issue and a whole other story because people are so flunky and 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 funny about who they'll vote for and who they won't for and who exactly. they'll make a stand about. It's and exactly, they, and it's ridiculous. You know, what precisely, I mean? yeah. So I'm not even going to get into that because that's just ridiculous in its own way. But I don't, I don't go by the PED thing. I mean, if you're a blatant cheater, I guess, over and over and over to the point where it's kind of ridiculous, then I guess I'll, you know, make a stand on that one. But if it's just kind of like, whatever, I'm not going to let that override the accomplishments. I didn't do that with Shane Mosley. I didn't do that with Evander Holyfield. I'm not, I didn't do it with James Honey. Like, you know, I'm who I am. Other people have different stands, whatever. So what I'm getting at, though, if you look at Tony's career, and if if you didn't vote for him because of the PED thing, and you'd rather have thought that someone else on the ballot had a better career than him and didn't want to, and he didn't deserve induction that year, I need, I would love to talk to you for a minute and try to see where your where your logic is with that, because Tony up and down has a deep, ridiculously deep resume. And tremendous accomplishments, one of the most skilled practitioners of the past 30, 40 years you'll ever see. And 
Dude, yeah, his 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 resume speaks for itself. All right. Even if he didn't win every single one of his big fights and all that for a variety of reasons, being lazy, he went through a spell and all that. When he was on his game, when he was at his top as a middleweight and super middleweight, and even hell as a cruiserweight in the early 2000s, bro, Tony was, again, man, uh, unbelievable. And he fought, unlike others, at that fight at the top level, Tony always sneaked out the top best fighters. He called out everybody, but trash talk anyone. He was ready to fight everybody. He didn't give a fuck. He wanted to fight them all, you know? I loved James Tony. I loved watching him, man. Watching James Tony was like listening to, you know, Coltrane and Charlie Parker, Dexter Gordon, one of those like legendary jazz musicians just playing a tune, man. It's just poetry right in there. It's, it's something to watch. Like, you know, you're watching literally what they call the sweet science. And Tony wasn't an overwhelming guy. He didn't like, you know, he didn't knock you out with one punch early or anything like that. Like he just broke you down and just made you like study this stuff. And he fought all the top guys there were, and he was active. That's another thing, man. He was active, active, active. When in one of the last fighters of um of his era, and one of the last fighters just in general like this, who as a top practitioner in the sport would have a major fight on HBO or pay for whatever it may be, and in his very next fight would fight a guy like ten and nine, you know, eight Governor Shavers on ESPN, just as a tune-up. Yeah, you know. One of, you know, uh, one of those fighters that like, especially in this day and age and the way that like, uh, you just don't see any fighters that go beyond like 70 or 80 fights, pro fights anymore. Like it, it's fairly rare. And if they did, they started really young or, you know, did the same thing that you were just describing with James Tony, where they were fighting off TV or fighting on a smaller network or fighting, you know, uh, six weeks after they just fought or something like that. It, that's just something that you don't really see. And I mean, you talk about James Tony at the lower weights. He had a really good run uh, from 160 to 168. And then obviously got lost for a number of years there, kind of just like had to find his own way. But then when he came back at cruiserweight, everybody talks about the gear off fight and they should really good fight, fun fight, incredible call on HBO, Manny Stewart's uh, absolutely going fucking nuts during the knockout. Ah! You know, it's it's like one of the all time. You tell he was pulling for James at the end of and that last oh, he throw, was. he was really pulling for it. And then when he was like telling him, he was, you know, he's like, come on. Go to the body! Go to the body! When he landed that left hook, you remember, that's when he loses it. He goes, left hook! Left hook! He got him with the left hook! Giroff's hurt! Giroff's hurt! <laughs> he said that's when <laughs> And then you he can got tell he, you can tell he's like he's like shaking somebody's yeah. shoulder as he's you know it's fucking great. You hear, you hear James uh, Tony's because it was, was at Foxwoods, right? And you know that's a really yeah. small intimate venue to begin with, so you can hear Tony's cornerman. He's hurt, James. He's hurt. He's hurt, James. And you know they're going back and forth, and then Stewart, <laughs> oh my god, oh my god, and then they even got Lampley to start going, oh my god, and like going back and forth together. And then finally, when Giroff finally goes down at the end, you hear um, Stewart, oh, he's down. He got him down. Ow. Like, you know, man, that shit was beautiful, bro. That was one of the, my favorite calls of all time for a fight. Oh, I'm sure from no question. Yeah. Absolutely no question, dude. It's it's fantastic. And, uh, and I mean, the funny thing is, like, it's a great fight. It's a great call. A lot of good memories. It's a fun time. Dude, I remember... Yeah, it's just a, it was a a fun time for boxing and to be a fan. Um, but people remember how good the fight was, which like rightfully so. And Vasily Jirov kind of looked like shit for much of the fight. To be frank, like he was applying a lot of pressure, 
a lot of ineffective pressure, in my opinion. Like I thought it was slightly more one-sided, at least on the cards, than a lot of people thought it was at the time. I just thought James Tony was clearly, you know, clearly beating him on the in- on the inside despite fighting off the ropes. And there was a lot of shit Jiroff was doing that was just kind of ineffective. But regardless, it was super fun, and his constant pressure uh, really gave it at the very least the appearance that it was like nip and tuck and shit like that but beyond all that Vasily Yurov was number one undefeated he had held the the title that Tony won from him for like I don't know, like five or six years or something like that dude he'd held it for a long ass time and he had already cleaned out that portion of the cruiserweight division at the time kind of like clearing away for a brand new like iteration at cruiserweight, especially with Don King in the mid two thousands and all the dudes that he had at cruiserweight. And so, yeah, right. you know, like I, it's easy to dismiss Vasily Yurov because again, Oh, and also kinda... too, man, you should mention, you know, it has to be mentioned. He was the Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, that, and I think he yep. won the Val Baker. Then he won the Val Baker. Like, he did. Um, and and I'm pretty sure he did. And he I'm pretty Tarver sure it was too, Tarver that he beat. Yeah. And I want to say the gold medal Tarver. or silver medal. No, it was like a early, early match. I don't even know if was Tarver it? even met. Yeah. It you was might, an earlier match. You might be right. But regardless, I do know he beat Tarver. And I know that he was the, the gold medalist. And he was, I mean, like his style was, I think, easy to dismiss because he was kind of like a put his head down and throw type of guy. Not unskilled. But yeah, I mean, just easy to dismiss. But a lot better than than I think advertised uh, in that regard. So anyway, like, dude, James Tony, he's definitely deserving in my book, and he was a guy that I thought would get in last year and just didn't. And shockingly, but I mean, you know, it's a resume that deep, and when it comes to the past like 30, 40 years, right? If you want like thirty five, I will say thirty. That's that's always a good um, thing. So like the past thirty years, that pat, you know. If you look at Tony's resume, it goes right up there with anybody's at the very, very top, easily, if not surpassing them. You know, like I just brought up his box rec page really quick. In 1991, his first fight's against Murky Sosa. You know what I mean? Then he moved, and like it's, which is crazy in itself because Sosa was undefeated at that point, and everybody will tell you was an absolute animal. You know what I mean? A guy who never won a world title but gave everybody hell except for Roy Jones. Yeah, good puncher. Um, yeah. Yes, very good puncher, ridiculous chin. Um, you know, if you mention Sosa to past opponents today, everyone will tell you they were just like, dude, that dude was ridiculous. I didn't like fighting him. Even Roy said that. Roy was like, the punches he hit me with, I knew I had to get him out of there because I didn't want to go through that for 12 rounds. Like, Sosa was that dude, all right? Um, and then he fights Michael Nunn soon after that for the title. Nunn was an undefeated guy, pound for pound entrant, looked upon to be the next Sugar Ray Leonard potentially. By 1991, he leveled off a little bit, but he was still one of the top guys in the world. And Tony was getting his ass whooped the entire fight, you know what I mean? Until he finally landed that Hail Mary punch and, you know, took none out. His first defense is against Reggie Johnson, bro. Reggie Johnson is criminally underrated today. Not a guy who's, like, remembered as one of the top names from back in the day, but, like, he was a very top, a very, very good fighter who was a very skilled practitioner. middleweight champion. Yes, drop Tony. And, you know, made him for a very tough, very, very, very close fight. And, and also a, fight. an incredible nickname. Too sweet. What was um Sweet was Johnson? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sweetness, right? It, it was just sweet. Sweet Johnson. Oh, Reggie yeah, Sweet, sweet Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
that knockout of William Guthrie too is ridiculous. Oh yeah, dude. Oof. But um, you know, and then I fight after that. Not right after that, but two uh, two fights later, he fights Mike McCallum. And this is yeah, all dude. in 1991, by the way. This is all in the span of just like one year from. Yeah, I didn't that. even I didn't even bring up the McCallum fights, dude. And I mean, even by then, uh, by even by that time, that was even toward like. You know, Mike McCallum, I wasn't the end of his career, but, like, he'd been oh, around no, a while. McCallum was, McCallum was still going strong. He still hadn't... Um, he'd been around a while, though. Had like, he had a run going for him, you know, well, in his future. Well, and he was, and he was like, not somebody to be trifled with. Like, he was an experienced <laughs> pro, you know what I mean? And Tony got in there with him and mixed it up with a guy like that. McCallum was 42 one when they fought. That's from, yeah, that's incredible, dude. And and especially the level, the level of skill that was showed between those two fighters in this in their series, dude. Amazing. Oh, it was incredible, man. Because Tony was trained by Bill Miller, you know, Detroit disciple, one of very old school trainer, came up and just one of the guys who taught Tony all the tricks of like the old tricks that a lot of fighters don't really use today and don't really study. Because no one can be bothered to look at film that's not from 19, you know, that's uh, earlier than the 80s. So Bill Miller made sure Tony studied all these guys. Like Bill Miller came up, you know, he's friends with Ezra Charles, for instance. So he had a study in all these techniques, the fights, the movements, everything like that. And it was, you know, you just see that. When you look at Tony, you see a throwback fighter. Every All the movements he did. And one of my all-time favorite performances, regardless of anybody, was Tony's fight against... Um, sure you would agree with this is uh when he moved up to super middleweight and decimated iran barkley i mean obviously oh, yeah, barkley yeah. was tailor made for him you know in his style but the way bro those highlight videos that are on youtube man it is incredible to watch bro it was like tony just cut him the ribbons in the way just slipping the sliding the angles he was using his footwork the combinations bro. I, it is the most beautiful things you know, like you know it was incredible to watch man That's a thing of beauty absolute beautiful man tony was at his peak at that point and at, at that night the night the way he decimated barkley he would have been health for anyone at middleweight super middleweight in history anybody anybody well and it's also like timing wise dude you have to like anybody dismissing that has to remember that like that was not that long after i ran barkley uh uh took out tommy hearns dude like, I mean, the, the that I think is probably one of the craziest things to me is that some of these fighters were not separated from like these like classic era of like middleweight and super middleweights that a lot of us might think that that James Tony and Roy Jones were not that many years away from what was going on with the with the four kings or, you know, however you want to describe them between uh, Hagler, Hearns, Leonard and Duran there really weren't that many years separating what was going on between some of these fighters. So, I Tommy mean... Tommy Hearns was still active. There was, Hearns was discussed about fighting Roy Jones and James Tony on numerous occasions in the 90s. Yeah, I remember you sent me that interview where he's talking about it, and it's like, ooh, Tommy, don't do it. But, yeah, it's... Even Ray was talked about it when he came back when he came back to boxing. There was talks about him fighting everybody from Roy Jones to the Sugar, to De La Hoya. You know, it's always it always happens. So yeah, you're totally right. They weren't that far apart. The nineties is kind of a long time ago now. Well, and it seems like it was like a very separate era. It's just that it wasn't as far, you know, it, it wasn't that there weren't that there wasn't that much time 
uh, as much time separating as, you know, as we might think, but, you know, going on, on the, or moving on, moving along on the ballot, I was going to say that the pick on the ballot that I actually had like kind of wavered on and wasn't really sure I was going to pick him. Um, and not because of anything he did wrong or anything like that, but just because I feel like there are kind of some asterisks on his accomplishments. Uh, and that's actually Miguel Cotto. I thought that mm -hmm. Miguel Cotto is, you know, not undeserving, but that it's a fairly strong ballot. And I kind of like had to like almost justify it a little bit, but you know, you look and you see a unified welterweight champion, you see a lineal middleweight champion. Like that alone with one fighter having accomplished in, you know, a middle or the uh, welterweight and middleweight championship. That's a pretty strong argument. Very, very. Uh, you know, some people would say, oh, Martinez, the guy he took the title from Sergio Martinez was already damaged and whatever it may be. But still, that was huge for Cotto because no one thought that was going to happen. Everybody thought that. Right, exactly. Martinez still blast him even with bad knees. Cotto decimated him. Cotto looked really good as a middleweight, actually. Not even gonna lie. Yeah, that was that was like shocking. Daniel Gill, yeah, what he did to Daniel Gill was really impressive too. But I voted for Cotto. Um, I voted for him last year as well. Um, again, I think his resume is as good as it gets for the, for the past 15, 20 years for a top guy. He didn't really duck much competition. He fought who was out there. Um, there's a few, you know, he didn't win every big fight he was in. But he was never like blown out in them either. You know what I mean? And the guys that he ended up do and the guys that he did beat, he had some big names on his record. You know, he ended up beating Margarito in a rematch. He beat Shane Mosley, beat um Zab Judah. Um, like you mentioned, he moved up to beat Martinez for the middleweight championship. Like Cotto has names on his resume and overall from wins and losses and everything like that, man, from the beginning of his career, because he was never really coddled either when he was like brought up as a prospect on HBO and various pay-per-views. Like Cotto's resume is as deep and good as it gets for me. And that's what um and if, combining that with his accomplishments, I think that you know he was worthy. Over and it was and for him for me, like Cotto and Tim Bradley are the two guys that I've kind of had been going like back and forth with like head to head a little bit. And Cotto, I've just kind of pushed ahead in terms of just more so for, because of that. Yeah, dude, there's even with Cotto's bigger loss. Uh, probably being the Margarito loss. There's obviously for a lot of people a massive asterisk on that as well. Um, there isn't for me personally, but I understand it. Like I understand the suspicion. I understand uh, being suspicious that Antonio Margarito loaded his gloves or whatever you want to call it. But regardless, um, you know, yeah, he obviously has a very good resume, like you said, especially for the last 20 to 25 years. And now that he's been retired long enough, it's like I, I got to see pretty much his career from start to finish. Like, you know, I came on as a fan, as a hardcore fan in time to catch the beginning of his career and then the end of his career. And so I think that that's at least kind of Remember cool. when he had hair? <laughs> yes, I remember actually I was I literally was just thinking that when he took on uh Love More and Do and he actually he had, had corn a, he had a braid. Yeah, he yeah, had he had cornrows and he got them all fucked up because he got beaten up a little bit during that fight. Like 
I remember, I remember watching that fight too and thinking that at the time and not shitting on him at all, dude. And his prime and do was a tough, tough dude, but I, he kind of just like, almost like Saki Obika did him, like, just like roughed him up, like, you know, <laughs> pushed him around in the clinch and that was, was like cuffing him. him. Yeah, he needed it, but like, yeah, exactly. It was, it was the kind of fight that like a young fighter really needs and he got it. But um, that was his last fight actually before the looking at his uh, box trick. That was his last fight before he fought Kelsey Pinto for the for his first title. But I remember, I remember that. Too, that. You know, these guys were a little bit smaller, or they weren't like they were tough names though. They were good veterans. They he was built up almost like Delahoya to a degree. Like Delahoya when he was being when he was first being brought up, he wasn't coddled. But people would also say, oh, you know, he's fighting guys a little bit smaller than he is, so they're not going to give him like you know massive trouble even though they're tough guys like jorge paez troy dorsey things of that nature well, i remember I, mean? I remember it was uh i th i think it was kelson pinto and it was muhammad abdulayev both of yes. them had had defeated kodo in the amateurs and uh kodo's loss to abdulayev had been going around a, like a video file had been going yeah. around for a few years and everyone was like, oh, look at Muhammad Abdullah. You know, he's a killer and all this type of shit. And, of course, looking back, like, he was the one in with scrubs. Like, he was knocking out scrubs and shit. And so, and so he wound up, you know, getting beaten up pretty good. And Kelson Pinto, I remember Manny Stewart speaking out and saying, oh, you know, I really like Kelson Pinto. But it was like a lot of people were kind of like, ah, well, he's a tall kind of lanky puncher. Of course, Manny Stewart likes him. You know, that's that's his type when it comes to fighters. And so I remember Manny Stewart speaking out about Kelson Pinto at the time, but Kelson Pinto also was a really good amateur and had a, uh, I think backing from Marcelino Freitas at the time and blah, blah, blah. So like, it's, it's kind of fun to go back and think about the narrative for some of these fights, despite the fact that like a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the quote unquote research done by some of the people who vote for their national boxing hall of fame but also fans and stuff like that too the kind of quote-unquote research is literally just looking on box rec um which sometimes that's good enough or sometimes that's fine sometimes that works or whatever and sometimes that's not enough dude sometimes just whatever box rec says does not tell the story of what happened in the fight it doesn't tell you that a lot of people were split thinking kelson pinto was going to beat Miguel Cotto because he defeated him in the amateurs or that a lot of people were talking shit because Muhammad Abdullayev was uh uh showcased on Showbox a whole bunch of times before then and you know in these matchups where in hindsight he like his opponents were just overmatched whether they were undefeated or whatever and so you know a lot of people were saying oh Muhammad Abdullayev he's more mature he's gonna kick his ass anyway does that make that win marquee because people said that? No, but there's a lot of story, a lot of backstory to a lot of these uh, fights where you just look at them on box rec and it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you anything. These are all good. Like, these are all solid names. Like you mentioned, Abdullah did have a lot of hype to him before Cotto completely, you know, smashed him up at the garden. It, and, um, and do you remember, sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but do you remember like right after that too, or perhaps not right after that, but very soon after that, Muhammad Abdullah fought um, Emmanuel, fight, what's that? Emmanuel Claudie. Yes. Yeah. It was the, the other Claudie dude, the, like the other yeah, Claudie cousin Claudie or whatever. Yeah. Cousin, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he quit in that fight, didn't he? And he got knocked down and he sat there 
uh, counting along with the referee. Oh, that was it. Okay, yeah. And, and then, and then, and then he got all like, "Whoa, whoa, wait, what?" And then he tried to say later he didn't understand the count because he didn't speak English and all sorts. I remember that. I don't know why that popped up in my head. I hadn't thought about that. In, I don't know, like fifteen it's years. Totally right. I know he lost again after that, but yeah, I haven't. I'm gonna have to look anyway, that up after. I, that totally. <laughs> I had to get that out before I forgot. Um, another fight too that I loved from that era, uh, Ricardo Torres, that you know doesn't actually yeah. get mentioned enough today when you think about it. Um, that That's was a great fight. fight. That was a great fight. Oh my god, man! And that that was one of those fights too that no one really knew what to expect because um, Torres. When I watched it live on HBO, I'm sure you know you did too. Everybody did. Um, Torres was one of those unknown Colombians with a with a glossy record who could punch really hard, but you don't know what you're getting with him. You know you're getting a hard puncher, but he could <laughs> yeah, you always got to be <laughs> careful with those dudes. Exactly, you know he can either absolutely suck or he's going to be really, really dangerous. And yeah, you're going to get a mere con. Yeah, yeah. So, what was it? Cotto dominated the first round, and round two, that's when um, Torres came back and dropped him, and then it just hell on wheels from there that fight was awesome and i remember after the fight ended when Cotto finally stopped him that he like dropped a, like kind of like i used to after getting into a big war kind of dropped on all fours and was shaking his head like holy shit <laughs> yeah don't do that again yeah <laughs> just get him out next time yeah uh, that was just, and he was just kind of like bro like he was like what did i just go through in that fight like that was intense but yeah man well, Cotto after i'm sorry but no i was i was just gonna say that people have it all then, you know, like at least on Kodo's resume that he does have some wars and some really fun fights, great fights and the accomplishments, you know? And he did fight guys that no one was looking to really fight at that time. No one, I mean, Shane Mosley is a huge name and especially in 2007, he's one of the top names in the sport, but Mosley was still like, as a pay-per-view guy, he was, he wasn't a guy that people were like demanding to fight at that point. You know what I mean? And Kodo being undefeated soon after he had beat um zab judah soon after he had beat uh, other names that we had mentioned ak urkel and um you know kelson pinto malinagi who was undefeated at the time he went in with mosley mosley was still at the top of his game i thought mosley was gonna win that fight um that was my first year of living in the, in the city i remember that was the first time i went to jimmy's corner it was the night before that fight and i met a bunch of writers for the first time and i stood there till like 4 a.m i was like happiest kid on the planet that shit was awesome but so, you know, he ends up being Mosley and then fights Margarito soon after that and the fight with Joshua Claudi. Who the hell was trying to fight Claudi at that point? Nobody. Like, literally nobody did. Claudi was a nightmare to fight. And Cotto found that out because that was a nightmare for him in that fight. But, like, you know, just the, the list would go on and on from there. He, he fought Pacquiao. He um, fought Margarito again, Mayweather, you know. So, like I said, even if he had lost, it wasn't like he was really blown out or anything. He always gave a really good account of himself in those fights to show that he was still a top-level guy. Maybe not the elite that Pacquiao and Mayweather were because they showed their class against him, but he also gave them hell of a fight. Like, he's the one of the few guys that bloodied the hell out of Mayweather, Mayweather's nose and, like, bloodied his mouth a little bit and landed hands on him. And Floyd looked like he was an actual fight after that fight. You know what I mean? The scorecards didn't show it because every scorecard was a stupid blowout for Mayweather. Um, but... That fight was really competitive. Floyd was in an actual fight, and he got out jabbed, and he got out punched a little bit sometimes in there. And the same thing with the Pacquiao fight. Until Pacquiao took over with the knockdowns and really started putting a beat down on him, Cotto was going nick for nick with him. 
I was going to say, dude, in both of those fights, uh, the end result is that's another, uh, that's another example where like the end result doesn't really tell the tale of either of those fights because at least in spots for stretches of the fight, Miguel Cotto was hanging tough with both of those fighters and both of those fighters are easily the best two fighters of their generation. So, I mean, well, I mean, I guess you know, what, however you want to define generation or wherever you want to put the cutoff, but regardless, two extremely great fighters who are both all-time greats and Miguel Cotto hung tough with them. So I don't think there's any, uh, there's any question. I mean, you start asking questions, I think like, well, who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? And you brought Barry McGuigan earlier. That's one name where a lot of people kind of point to and say, well, you know, that's the threshold. He shouldn't be in and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there are, there is a lot of um, kind of like middle guys where like they might not have been like the absolute best pound for pound for stretches of a time in their sport, but that doesn't mean they're not worthy. That doesn't mean that, you know, just because you're a step below a Mayweather and a Pacquiao, that's certainly not anything. It takes longer for other guys to get in than others, you know. When certain that's guys true. first get on the ballot, um, a lot of people are just kind of like, yeah. And then, well, you know, not so much that their name is on the ballot, but it's just kind of like, well, I'm not voting for them. There's tons of other guys to vote for. But then go through years and years and years, eventually there might be a lean year here. And then you look at his record again a couple of times and you start thinking to yourself, well, you know, actually, you know, when I look back on it, it's not really as whatever what I thought. Yeah, let me get a check mark next to it. Perfect example would be like Donald Curry or Nassim Ahmed. I used to vote for Ahmed more often, I'm sure, than the average person is. He just gets a bad reputation with him. For various reasons but um i you know hamed it took a while to get in surprisingly same thing with curry curry i don't think i ever actually voted for him i can't recall but he was on the ballot for a number of years before he finally slipped in on a, on a lean year yeah i mean i i actually thought that uh i thought too that nasim hamed would be somebody who would get in but nasim hamed is somebody where like you know and this might not be the best way to gauge popularity or reception or whatever but every time i post something about nasim hamed on the boxing history pages or whatever dude without fail every single time like a handful of people like barrera 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 marco antonio barrera i'm like god damn the dude did have a career before that you know that right? kind of like whenever canelo wins a fight and everyone has to post the mayweather clip just because like jesus christ bro you know like they if a fighter's career is literally defined by one fight, they probably don't deserve to be in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. But that's not the case here, dude. No, they're, you know, uh, it. yeah. Hamed was one guy I thought would would get in too. Miguel Cotto was somebody I wasn't really entirely sure about. But I was, I actually, I think the other two fighters are definitely going to be in the mix. But I don't know. I think the other two fighters we picked as like one might have a chance just because he had just enough name recognition at, at a portion of his career to kind of like get some recognition in the U.S. But the other fighter we picked pretty much has no chance. But it's definitely a pick where it's like, you know, we had to make it. So the first one that I was talking about is Pong Sik, like Wong Jung Kim. I got that out of the way for you. I won't make you have to. I won't make you try to say that. I can say that. <laughs> Pong, no, it's, nah, oh, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I was back like Wong Jung, Wong Jung, yeah. 
yeah it, it's not too too bad you literally just say it how it's spelled but it is tough to yeah. the western ear and the western mouth it ain't it ain't easy punks look like wong jung cam extremely great flyweight though um flyweight is one of those divisions really deep historically so it's like you know if you're not one of the top 10 flyweights of all time like no you're gonna be forgiven but even so he had an incredible stretch uh with the wbc flyweight title which technically speaking um until it was kind of reunified was the lineal flyweight title it went through the wbc title and was unbroken for a number of years so uh technically speaking Wan Jung Kim was the lineal flyweight titleist I mean that's kind of the crappy part and especially with a number of these lower weight divisions is that there's a real lack of unification and undisputed titles and stuff like that if you care about those things and especially in like you know leading into the early 2000s it was probably a little easier to care about those things but um there's not much unification and no unification from Wanjong Kim even so uh the division that he fought in was extremely heavy with both Thai and Japanese challengers. And he literally like cleaned out that portion of the division. Dude, he was featured in the ring magazine ratings for like over a decade, whether as champion or just top contender undefeated from 1996 up until when he finally lost the title for the first time. And I don't have to look at it up in what year that was. Cause like, again, he had such a long, long career. Um, that was in. Yeah. So he lost it to Daisuke Naito. Yeah. yeah. So and Daisuke Naito. Yeah. And the guy that he had already beaten twice before that. Well, and, and on top of that, like, despite the fact that Naito had already lost to Wanjong Kim, Daisuke Naito himself was a really good was a, fighter. Yeah, was a really good fighter who went on to become a long-term champion after that, absolutely. Exactly. But yeah, he went on to have a really like, good career. You know, you, the people will be like, oh, if you look through his record, and if you go back from when, you know, he was featured in all of the ringside reports for Ring Magazine back then, and all the fights, because he was a very active champion. He was fighting all the time back then. And a lot of his defenses, a lot of them, you know, they'll even say it in the ringside reports, they weren't the strongest competition he could have been fighting, but he wasn't fighting absolute cupcakes in every fight either. Like, he, there was, you know, some good names on his on his record there. Like you mentioned, Naito and um, <clears throat> Hussein. Hussein was another good fighter who went on to have a couple of absolute wars, who had an absolute war with um, uh, Jorge Arce. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That fight was off the chain. Um Alex Ali Baba was another, like, you know, Malcolm Tanako, who he won the title from. So, you know, there was a lot of good fighters that he went through. And the fact of the matter is that, like, he was active as hell when he went through. Like, he dominated his division, cleaned it out, was undefeated for a number of years. So this is one that's not so much the name recognition or resumes that we were saying for, like, guys like James, Tony, and Miguel Cotto. But what you got to vote for now and what you're looking at in this regard is longevity how long you've just been a dominant champion. Like, for instance, um, another Thai great, Kosai uh, Galaxy, you know, the junior bantamweight champion. How long did he reign for? Like, he reigned for from the, like, late about 1984, 1985 up until 1991 and never lost a title in the ring. And dominated all of his competition for the most part, right? 
he got into the Hall of Fame his first year because of that, based on that, not because he had a bunch of mid major names on his rec on his record. And he was a superstar in America because of that featured on television. It was because of just what he did with his division. If you can clean out your division, become a, a definite great in your division because of that, a recognized champion, like you said, undisputed lineal champion, well, not undisputed, but lineal champion, guy who beat the man who beat the man, and held that title for around, almost around a close to a decade and clean out your division in the process, that alone will get you high regard to get you on the ballot for the Hall of Fame and get you inducted. But on top of that, after he looked like he was washed when he lost, the, when he finally lost the title to Naito, and then he, you know, struggled for a little bit, he came back again and he was able to beat the, you know, Koki Kameda, who in the early and mid 2000s of the, the, the Kameda brothers was a very controversial fighter, but a very talented one at the same time. And Wong John Kim was able to come back and beat him for the belt in a big upset. And that alone, too, coming back after having that long reign, being written off, and then coming back to win the title after against a, against a young champion who was expected to, you know, whoop you right there, I think, you know, solidifies it. Yeah, there were actually other fighters, too, that he did. So he didn't wind up unifying, but he did defeat, like, for instance, Julio Cesar Miranda, who wound up later on picking up the WBO title. So, I mean, like, I know that's not the same. It's not the same as unifying. But the point is that he did fight a who's who of who was available to him in flyweight for the most part during his reign. And it took, you know, when and he was posted another name on his on his ledger as well. Yep. And and Sonny Boy Jaro, when he wound up defeating him in like 2012, 2013, that was a massive, even despite the fact that it was his second reign and it was an unexpected reign, that was still a massive upset. And so that even, uh, I think that that alone kind of tells you that there was at least some uh, basic recognition and acknowledgement that Pongsuk, Pong like Wan Jung Kam, was, was a very good fighter. And to be fair, he had a, a very memorable name and the kind of name that I suppose a lot of U.S. fans would remember, you know, if they read it and saw it. And it's, it's the kind of thing where, like, if you're keeping up on Fight News or whatever kind of website, you, you would see his name, you know, every two to three months fighting in, in Thailand. And uh, he was also actually a, a, a favored fighter of the Thai, of Thai, the Thai royal family, too. He fought at, like, the that whatever that palace is. I, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but he fought there a whole bunch of times. And that's another thing I want. That's actually a good point that you just brought up, is that with the... With, um... With Wong Jong Kim fighting in not too long ago, like in this era, in the you know early 2000s, mid 2000s, when the internet age was at like a boom, and like you mentioned, fight news and other websites and stuff like that, always having ringside reports and other reports and met and profiling guys from all around the world. Wong Jong Kim did get a lot of um, write-ups about him. He was featured, you know, not to say that you saw him on television or anything like that, but you saw his name everywhere because he was so active back then. So, like you mentioned, Fight News or Boxing Talk or whatever, what website, Eastside Boxing, whatever was back in the day that you go to, there's probably a little written up about him making another title defense and how he's, like, adding to his legacy and whatever it may be. And he was always mentioned in Ring Magazine, and there was talks, you know, in, in various reports and all that. I think he probably was Fighter of the Month a couple of times, you know, here and there. So, yeah, that helps him, that helps his chances, I think, definitely, because he's more featured and he was, his name was more out there as opposed to the guy we're going to bring up next. 
who back then being a lightweight fighter in the 80s and early 90s, you know, in the, in the 80s, um, you got no attention, <laughs> like, whatsoever at all. That, that, that trend didn't really start to change up until probably the early 2000s, you know what I mean? <clears throat> like, flyweights, if you're an American flyweight and you were talented, I mean, that, was, that in itself was really rare back in the day, very, very rare, but if you were like, you know, in that division, junior flyweight, flyweight, and you're American and you're talented, they would change, you eventually would probably get featured on, on a station. Like, Danny Romero was featured on HBO. He was the first American flyweight that uh, I think actually was ever televised on HBO. And he was the first American flyweight champion in over 60 years. Um, Mark Johnson was another one who unfortunately wasn't featured on HBO or Showtime until he was already past his best but he was still featured on television like espn fox sports and other stuff like that like he was out there you know and then even will grisby a name that a lot of people is kind of like who was um a junior flyweight champion from uh, minnesota in the early in the late 90s early 2000s very talented fighter in himself who uh got a couple of fights on the air including a title fight with uh, ricardo lopez so you know, these were guys, these are names that, like, unless you, you know, had, like, American lineage, you probably are, were really, really, really good. So Don King or someone might feature you on, like, a pay-per-view undercard. You probably weren't going to get a lot of attention. So Wong John Kong at least has that going for him. Not so much that we saw a lot of featured fights on him. If you were a tape trader back then and, you know, probably was able to, like, get some streams for the internet or whatever it was, you probably were very familiar with him. But to the average fan, you definitely did read about him. So that goes for him at least. Yeah, and I'm and on top of that, you know, this this last guy, uh, there definitely wasn't there were not as many write-ups about him. It was tougher to get video. Uh, well, I will say there was a small chunk of his career where if you were around during that time, you might have seen local video of him in LA. You might have been able to see him at, at one of the local venues in LA, but he didn't fight there that long. And in any case, uh, despite that fact, he's one of the the best, if not the best, junior flyweights ever. And that's Hilberto Roman. And so that's somebody that I want to say, I think, I, I know for sure last year. But I want to say it was the year before as well that I voted for him. Um, yeah, I voted, I voted for um, Roman. For a number of years, I believe I voted for him and yeah. I mean, it it sucks, dude. It really does suck because without question, it's not like it's a division that number one has been around super long, um, and it's also not a really deep division from the Americans' perspective. The American perspective, so it's like you know, you ask most boxing fans, "Who's your top junior flyweight?" They're going to be like, "Junior what weight? What do you mean?" Like, they're just, they're not going to even go there. But for those who do care to compile such lists. Super flyweight. Or, what's that? Super flyweight. Or sorry, yeah, super flyweight. Um, for, for those, the kinds of people who do care to compile lists, or even if you're not in a compiling list, just knowing who the best fighters from a given division uh, were. I mean, he's easily one of the top two or three super flyweights of all time. So in any case, um just based on that alone, it's like, you, you gotta be in, you know, if you're the top, like two or three fighter in division period, you gotta be in. Right. 
Absolutely, man. But the thing with Roman, too, like you mentioned, he actually he was featured on on television a couple of times. I think he had a slot. His fight with uh, Sugar Baby Rojas, I love that name, um, was, I believe, on one of the Sugar and Leonard undercards. I don't know it was either Leonard Hearns 2 or one of them, but he was he was on a pay-per-view undercard. And so American audiences, they did get a chance to see him, but that was near the tail end of his career already at that point. Well, and like, he, he fought at the Olympic Auditorium a handful of times. Yes, he was fought, like yeah, so LA he was definitely in the arena. LA. If you, were, if, you were, if you were on the West Coast and watched fights in the LA area and stuff like that, then you, obviously you were familiar with him because that's when he was and, featured. And they usually, they usually televised uh, stuff in LA locally, like on KTLA or some other mm-hmm. local access thing. So uh, people would have been able to, you know, in theory, see it, you know. But again, if his his rise at the top um, was was not as long as say others like that. His you know he became champion in 1986 and lost it, but then was able to regain it again and you know had a very productive career. But the guys that he fought during that time, Hiro Watanabe, who's been on the Hall of Fame ballot for a number of years, I think he's moved on to the uh, old timers, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a name that most people will be like, who? But again, one of those guys from back in the day had incredible resume. He would have been a part of the first super flyweight um, unification fight if it wasn't for the WBA or WBC deciding to be an asshole about it and stripping Peyo Pundar before the fight happened. So that goes right there. Edgar Monson, that was another really, really top name, tough fighter back then. And then he fights Santos last year, all right? And... You know, last year is one of those guys that, for the lightweight fighters, last year is one of the top, um, one of the top lightweight fighters of the past forty years, easily. If you know, if, from if it were the from, right, if it were the right ballad, just to jump in real quick, if it were the right ballad, yeah, he would also be another pick. It wouldn't I've just. Pay, be I've, I've voted for last year in the past, in the past before too. Absolutely, An incredible fighter, and he had a he had a series with last year. They ended up getting you know coming ahead out of. Um, like I mentioned, Sugar Baby Rojas was another guy, a top fighter back in the day, a champion. And when, um, excuse me, when Roman originally lost his title, when he was able to regain it, um, Rojas was champion at the time and Roman put a masterclass on him. So when he, it was at the end of his run by like 1989, 1990, that's when like he was kind of past it a little bit. And, um, he beat last year on a final time, but that's when he lost to Nana Yakanadu, you know, extremely tough um, fighter from Africa. Ghana. What was he from Ghana? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, I think so. But anyways, by that point, Roman, who was one of the slickest fighters you'd see too, and, you know, almost in the mold of like, a, I don't, I wouldn't say Benitez, but like close enough, one of those guys that like, he would only be inches from you, stand right in the pocket, didn't run or anything, but could just make you miss by just inches. He'd be right next to you and make you miss and just counter you and just whoop you. And he was incredible to watch, man. Like, Roman was another guy that was beautiful. And not you know, like your stereotypical Mexican fighter, as they like to call it, Mexican style, which I find absolutely stupid. But, um... You Roman, ain't never seen You ain't never seen Miguel Canto? Yeah, right? or Salvador Sanchez, or Carlos Zarate, for that matter, or a lot of those other guys who didn't exhibit Mexican style, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, even even some of the, the typical practitioners of the quote-unquote Mexican style could box and 
style just was, fine. Yeah, man. Not everything was just walking in there, waiting left hooks. Ruben Oliveras can box his ass off too. Not like I don't understand when a Mexican fighters become a caveman Neanderthal over the years and why this theory is like gone through with that. Every guy is just, you know, face first, walks in with a granite chin and just take, absorbs a bunch of punches. Not everybody is Chavez Jr. Like, I don't, I don't you know. <laughs> that's Mexican style. That's what, they're, that's what they're describing right there. I'm not to get off track for the minute, but that's literally what they're describing. That's what they're talking about. Not a, no, real fighters, you know, they don't fight like this. You know what I mean? Roman would have the perfect example. His fights are on YouTube. Look him up. He was beautiful to watch. But Roman also falls into the Salvador Sanchez category that even though, unlike Sanchez, who died at his peak, Roman was already, you know, probably past that at this point. He did die very young in a car accident. Uh, I think he was only in his early 30s or something like that. I'm not even sure if he was that actually 30 but he was 28 oh there you go so he had a long career i mean you know completely finished career up at that point but the fact of the matter is that like he died so young and he died in what was it 1990 he died yeah Um, yeah he died in a car accident and so it was only a few years after salvador sanchez so it was like and that like kind of hurts his case because since he died so young He's, uh, he's been forgotten since then, too. Like, not many people bring his name up. You know, he's kind of been whatever. But it's unfortunate. Like, Roman was in a good era. He has a lot of very, very good names on his resume. Like, top names. You know what I mean? And the fact of the matter is that he was probably the best guy out of that era to come on top of that very deep division is pretty incredible. So imagine, though, if, you know, since he was still so young that, like his his career didn't start so early and that like maybe it started he didn't he doesn't die right and then like his career i don't know he turns pro in like 1986 or so or 87 or 88 one of those years instead and like later on and then if he had come in a different era then he moved then by the 90s a guy like roman fighting guys like what johnny tapia danny romero um you know, other top, when John, uh, Mark Johnson eventually moved up, like, think of the, the super, band, like, the junior bantamweights of that time during the early 90s, mid-90s, like, really, really, really top names, and he would have been featured definitely on HBO at that point, too, for it, or Showtime or one of them. Yeah, like, and just like uh, we were talking about before, like, with some of these other fighters, they really were only a few years away, like, just barely missed, like, a an era where they might have been featured in a slightly different way or against other fighters that were like all-time greats or mm-hmm. you know, uh, better received or whatever. But Roman was a good boxer, a, a good puncher. He wasn't like a, a slugger or anything like that, but he could punch just fine. He would have been, he would have fit just fine on an HBO or something like that. So the only thing he had was sometimes they, they questioned his conditioning issues and he was prone to cuts. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, and actually, if you actually look, he was only 28, but if you look at photos of him, and there aren't like a ton of them out there, but there are some, if you look at photos of him, you could see he looks like weathered, like he's got some scar tissue, dude, for sure. Even yeah, he definitely, 28. and he had like a really heavy mustache too, so I think that kind of like, you know, <laughs> added to his age. <laughs> he definitely yeah he definitely had the like the super mario mustache the the thick yeah, ass yeah, mustache yeah. for sure now you know he, he definitely um like we've talked about with other 
ballots for the Hall of Fame, a lot of it is a lot of not just with these fighters' careers, but with all the, also whether or not they're going to get in. A lot of it's timing, dude. You know, it really just comes down to when these fighters came around, but also when they retired and the rule changes on the voting ballots. So now it's like you get a, a ballot like this year where, in my opinion, the first like the first couple picks are fairly easy and there's like standout picks and there's probably other picks you want to make that they're most likely not going to get in. But there have been other years where like, for instance, last year was tough. The year before that was tough where you're just going through the ballot and going, man, I don't know. Like, you're like, wow, there are names on this. And in a couple of years, it's probably going to be the same thing. So, you know, it, it really just comes down to the strength of the ballot for a lot of these picks. And so before anybody starts slaying us for the, for the picks we're making and no, I'm not, I'm not inducting that person. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, look before people start really just taking it to us for why didn't you pick this person or why didn't you pick that person? These picks aren't easy. You know, like, and we like to actually take our time. Uh, with you stuff. can think it is. You can think it's really easy and just, you know, whatever, but it's not. If you really take your time and start nitpicking and going through their resumes, going back and watching some of their fights and reading articles on the past or whatever it is, like, you know, it's, it, it gets really dicey in there. And then when you, and when you really start fact checking, instead of just kind of off the top of your head, but like really checking each one of these shits, and you're just kind of like, whoa, this is actually much more closer head to head than I really thought it was. It gets it gets heavy. And that's when you that's when it gets tough for like you have two guys like Roy Jones and James Tony who are easy picks. All right, boom, boom. That's two. But what about my three additional ones? Then when it starts getting tougher, now you're down to the final two and you're really starting to like trying to like split hairs at that point. And yeah, you know. Well, and it's and it's not like, you know, we're not trying to slight anybody. We don't we want if it were up to us, everybody would get in. You know, if it, if it were up to us, like being able to pick 10 people and like five of them get inducted would be great. Like, and, and I understand that, that that's not necessarily how it could happen, but I would have loved to, for instance, also put in like Sochitalata, great fighter, would have loved to pick him. I would have loved to pick, just, you know, just looking at the, the ballot here, I would have loved to pick Rafa Marquez. I would have loved to pick Sung Kil Moon. I would have loved to pick Sven Otke. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have picked Sven Otke. <laughs> Sorry, Sven. No, but I would have loved to pick Israel Vasquez. I would have loved to, you know, there are a number of other fighters. Tim Bradley's really not that far off either. Uh, Yuri Arbachkov, eh, he's a little kind of off the map there, but he's not too, too far. There are other fighters. Santos Lassier, obviously, like we brought up earlier, there are other fighters that I would have loved to also include. I've called the one I've looked at for a That's number a, of yep. years. A couple of years um, ago, he was Moore, my fifth pick. Michael Moore is a name is one of those names that I've never voted for him, and I don't really plan on. I like you know I'm a fan. I'm a Michael Moore fan. Don't get me wrong, but he's one of those names because of his name recognition, him being heavyweight champion, he can get in in a lean year. He's been yeah. voted for people. I've seen on the I've seen on the Twitter timeline people posting their votes. That, you know there are some that I voted for him, and there's valid reasons that they posted for us or whatever. So I mean, yeah, I, I mean, can I get it. Him. Like, yeah yeah and, um, and, I, and i get it too yeah you know i i wish like i and i guess just uh just to repeat i wish that all of these fighters could get in and i want them to get recognition especially the fighters who are still alive and can still get it while they're alive and i know that also there are times when fighters just kind of show up to like whether or not they've been 
whether or not they're getting inducted or whatever. And that's cool too. You know, I mean, I'd love for them, for those fighters who aren't going to be inducted or haven't been voted for to show up and get love anyway, because that's the right place for it. Absolutely, man. And it's beautiful when these guys, well, whenever, and what's really cool is that if they're invited, and even if they're not in, um, in the hall of fame yet, but if they're invited, whether they're still an active fighter, or if they're a past fighter who just gets invited, who gets invited, like um, Iron Barkley, for instance, or John the Beast Mugabe, you know, guys like that. Um, if it's their first time there, they uh, will always get their fist casted, whether they're even inducted or not. But one thing I did want to mention briefly is that if you look at the ballot, you know, you see some names there that you just kind of like, you raise an eyebrow saying to yourself, why, why, why are they even on it in the first place? But what makes you question even more is that there's some guys that aren't on the ballot and whether or not you feel they're worthy of induction is up to you. But the fact of the matter that they're not on the ballot, considering who some, some of these other guys are, is just kind of an eye, you know, eyebrow raising. For instance, um, two guys off the top of my head would be Marlon Starling and Iran Barkley. You know, Simon Brown is another one too, for example. Not to say again that these are guys that should be in the Hall of Fame that's you know, open to whoever, but they're definitely would what they're accomplished and what they did in their careers are definitely worthy of at least being on the ballot. Well, and I mean, uh, it, to me, just to kind of respond fairly briefly, to me, it just seems kind of funky because it's not always consistent as far as who gets on the ballot and not or why, because it seems like there's there uh, there are a number of examples where the fighter only defeated like a gr one great fighter and they were put on the ballot because of that. But then there are these instances where like Iran Barkley defeated Tommy Hearns twice. Like, you know, I mean, it, it, so does that equate? Like, it, does that not? Anyway, that's what I mean is that it's, it doesn't always match up. So yeah, whatever. I'm not the person who gets to decide and I'm not going to complain yeah, too, exactly. too hard. But, I mean, it's just, but I've been asked before by like people that, that do vote and others and they're like, oh, who do you think should be also be on the ballot? Like they're trying to take notes. I've given them names and stuff like that, but then you know, it's up to them I guess to see if they want to put it up or not. Right. Well, in any case, man, you know, I, I personally really look forward to June. I hope everything goes as well as possible so that we can get this together. And you buy a ticket uh, yet? I'm not going to lie to you. No, I haven't, but I'm going hey, to. Neither have I. <laughs> so it's okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to, though. I'm about to pick them up actually in the next week or two because my, my birthday is this weekend. So I think that we're probably going to make it happen for a birthday present. But look, dude, Hell it's, yeah. it's going to be a big, big celebration regardless of anything you know i think that it's the kind of thing where like some vegas fights are so big like you don't even need tickets to the fight like just go and chill in vegas it's all good like mm -hmm. there's gonna be parties you get kicking it and it's like the same kind of thing dude if you don't have tickets to the actual hall of fame celebrations and stuff like that dude even if you went and hung out you'd probably still have a really good time for the weekend or something absolutely. um absolutely but i don't know i'm looking forward to it and i really hope that uh Really hope the inductees this year are, are, are we. I'll, I know they'll be worthy, but I hope that they they're proud. For sure, for sure. Well, I know we will be men watch them, but everybody that goes and gets inducted are just like they they always. You can just tell, man, they're odd by the moment. They they always are. Even even ones that are like major celebrities and like big deals and stuff like that. Just the whole atmosphere and being knowing that 
their fist, their you know, their photo, they're among immortals now with everybody else is like a big deal. It hits them. Totally. They get it. Yeah. yeah, one uh before we get out of here, one one name I wanted to drop uh and somebody that I'm really hoping that I get to meet uh in June is Eder Joffre. Uh my buddy Chris Smith, who I've known since he was not even old enough to drink through the max boxing message boards we met in vegas and he's hung around and we've gone to fights and stuff like that he wrote a really really good book about Eder joffre he got in in touch with mr joffre his family uh i mean he had access to all sorts of resources that really nobody else has had access to and wrote about a really incredible fighter and one of the older champions around right now uh and so i would really feel honored to meet him and you should check out that book uh uh I, I totally just kind of came up with it right now and so i spaced on the name of the book you know what i won't be an ass i'll just go ahead and look it up right now because uh that's bad form for me to bring it up and not even tell you the dang name here of the book um but i but i i know chris i've known him for a long time and he put a ton of work into this book and I highly recommend it here. It's called Eder Joffre, Brazil's first world champion. It came out, uh, like I think in spring or summer or something like that. And it's gotten some pretty rave reviews thus far, but I guess speaking of books, since I'm on the subject, you can probably see like right over the microphone here. I'm not sure if my hand is getting picked up right there but <laughs> my book is right here so if you want to check out my book about oscar ringo bonavena it's called uh <laughs> shot at a brothel the spectacular demise of oscar ringo bonavena true crime slash history book check that out since we're on the history tip of this show but eris dude man i i really appreciate giving your insight as a many year hall of fame voter dude i don't think people understand quite where Eris Pina is operating on the Hall of Fame level here, dude. <laughs> yeah, man, I've seen a lot of names. I've just been blessed, bro. That was all by luck. You know what I mean? That was just all by luck that I had a chance to opportunity. See, you're humble too. I don't, Damn it. That's true, because I mean, I don't know. It's like, I didn't, I don't vote. I've never had a published article. I'm not a part of the Boxing Writers Association or anything like that. I had a chance meeting with Don, with Don Majeski, who's a part of the Hall of Fame committee. Uh, one of the top, you know, one of the top people on it. And um, this boxing collector named John Gay told him, Don, you need this kid to be voting for the Hall of Fame. And he was like, Don just kind of looked at me and he was like, Garris, tell him about Coco Kid. And that just broke him down for him a little bit. And his eyes lit up and he was like, uh, you want to go to dinner tonight? And then me, my dad and him went to dinner. And then before I knew it, I was like, I got ballot in the mail that, that year. So... That's how it goes, dude. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, in the in the words of Jim Lampley, you bow to this man. You yeah. bow to him. <laughs> no, no, look, cool. uh, it, I, I really appreciate you, uh, I guess, having the exact same picks. as. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you doing the show with me, bro. I, it, it's a lot of fun, like always. Absolutely, man. It's always a blast. All right, everybody. Well, uh, in the meanwhile, before we do our next show, all the social media stuff. For instance, if you're on Twitter, follow my boy Eris Pina at Punch Zone Eris. Follow me, Patrick Connor, at Patrick 
M Connor. We're also on Facebook and also on Instagram. If you're into all that type of stuff and whatever podcast app that you listen to this through or on YouTube, subscribe on YouTube, but subscribe wherever you are. Give us a rating. Always appreciated. Eris. We'll talk soon, bro. Wait a moment. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.